Welcome to Zero Ambitions, the podcast with high ambitions about achieving zero emissions in the built environment, with all the charm of a chainsawed banana, of a Brexiting trouser, of a faxed divorce, I'm thinking specifically of a story which you guys can all Google about Phil Collins, uh, which he, which he uh, claims is just scurrilous uh, slander, um, but, uh, but I, I, I'd like to imagine actually happened. Um, and uh, of an empty forecourt, it's just to keep it topical there. Anyway, Ooh, so, so we'll blow. <laughs> yeah, I, I should say, you know, we don't have that problem in Ireland, although I wouldn't know I don't drive. It's my yeah. um, my um, usual fecklessness dressed up as virtue, you know. Um, when it, whenever any, anyone mentions Phil Collins, I always think I can feel it in the air tonight. So I don't know how that would have um, gone down with his, um, with his facsimile divorce. <laughs> so we, um, yeah. we, we yeah. just start. So, wow, yeah. it's uh, October, Jeff. Hello, Europe. <laughs> how's, how's life over on Plague Island? <laughs> yeah, I'm just finished queuing. Have you started eating your younger yet? You're <laughs> eating your young yet? Uh, no, no, we do have to queue for petrol. And in fact, the army's been brought in, uh, a couple hundred uh, tanker drivers. So we have to queue for petrol. Um, but no, there's, there is there is a lot going on in all seriousness. There's, um, you've probably seen in the last uh, couple of days or so, it seems a bit kind of perfect storm brewing. You, you, we've got... The energy uh, cap has been lifted uh, on uh, prices. We've got the increased gas prices, as you know, Jeff. Um, there's also the universal credit was, um, there's an uplift in universal credit uh, at the start of the pandemic, about £20 a week, um, which has now been drawn back. So there's lots of stuff in the press about the uh, increase in energy costs and the decrease in income from some of the most vulnerable. So there's quite, there's something going on there. It's quite interesting, although at the same time quite scary. And you know, the last couple of days I still I stay a little bit quite rural, but on Wednesday I think there was kind of frost in the car. So, you know, we're we're now starting to see the winter months, people are turning their gas boilers on. That's going to cost them more. So there's a lot going on and uh I'm just kind of fearful over the next few months what we what we see. It's pretty pretty scary, all right. Um and I, I just um you know, you, you the stories from over here that you see, and I, I have to say, I'm trying to, you know, uh, resist uh, my innate tendency towards uh, Schadenfreude, um, and um, you know, it's you remember that uh, that that there mm. are millions of people who are being profoundly affected Perfect. by uh, yeah. by the situation, and as 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 the winter comes, it's yeah. um, you know, it's a scary one. I mean. Um, you know, was trying to struggle and failing to failing to resist the urge to uh, to talk about the, lo- the likes of you um, uh, importing importing turkeys and uh, not having the energy to cook them. So you're going to have to come up with new, um, you know, uh, new uh, a turkey equivalent yeah. to steak tartare maybe for Christmas yeah. dinner. You know, <laughs> yeah, and all the salmonella that that brings, brilliant. Yeah, yeah, that's, uh, there you go. The uh, no, the, 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 there's 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 um, I not really thought about that, uh, but. I think what what was quite interesting in the conversation we had with Kevin, uh, which I thought was really good. I listened to it again and I, th- I thought some of his points were really interesting. And um, I listened to a guy, I can't remember the energy company. I'll probably I'll put it in the, the text in the podcast, but somebody from an energy company, one of the smaller ones. 
today saying, like, the government either has to um, deregulate the market. Yeah, OK, um, I don't think that's a, a particularly great idea. But what he was talking about was caps on wholesale price. I get that, 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 that energy companies are squeezing this middle between, you know, what Ofgem, uh, Ofgem put on them in terms of the cap and what they're buying energy for. But he said the government's either going to have to get involved uh, or going to going to have to um, leave them to it, so to speak, or get involved. And that's kind of what Kevin was talking about, which is quite interesting. And I think there's an opportune moment just now, as Kevin was saying, is to 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 directly take on consumers from some of these companies. It's going bust 12, I think, so far, Jeff. It's, it is extraordinary. Mm. Uh, it is an extraordinary failure. Um, and uh, uh, yeah, you, you, you're right. I mean, the, the, I think it looks increasingly like nationalization of of mm. of a supplier would be the, is 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 you know is the is the kind of yeah. quick fix that might be you know might might be required really you know yeah. uh, to yeah. get through the winter frankly you know yeah. um and i don't know if you i don't know if you caught Sarah lewis was um, presenting passive house um seminar workshop uh last week i thought she was excellent really really good and um one of the she she I think she mentioned a figure of three million um, and fuel poverty in the UK. I, I think that's low. I mean, I know in Scotland it's it's six hundred and nineteen thousand pre-pandemic. It's about twenty five percent of the population, or one in four households, Jeff, in fuel poverty, and a significant proportion of those guys in, in extreme fuel poverty. And I think the the thing I don't know about you, but when I hear a lot of the uh, the discussion and 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 the and, and the main uh, channels. We're talking about the symptoms and not the cause, you know, um, and, and and the symptoms are people can't afford um, to heat their home. The cause is how much energy do we need to heat those homes? That's 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 for me the talking point. Well, this is the thing, you know, uh, I think um, you can throw more money uh, mm. at a problem and, and it might be that as a Band-Aid, you know, um, uh, there are it's necessary and certainly that's something the government in Ireland has been has been talking about as well uh, is you know you know uh, essentially additional money for people uh, yeah. in in need of a winter fuel allowance for instance um but uh you know the, the, it's mm. again it's a band-aid you know yeah. and uh, and uh, th- th- this this point I suppose and also I should say that there's no guarantee if you give people the money that they're going to spend it on on yeah. uh, on on making the building warm you know um yeah. um so it's there's no getting away from it. You just, you, you have to address it. You just, ha- you have to make the buildings right. You know, you do. Uh, you do. So. And, and I think what interests me is um, when, when you, when you look at, so I had a slide I used at a presentation last week with Construction Scotland Innovation. And um, I got a figure directly from the Scottish government in terms of now, I'll clarify this in, in, in the text, but I think it's 2.6 billion is spent on gas central heating for residential properties now, I'll check that out. Let's you know two two and a half billion pounds every year, year on year. It's a massive, a gargantuan amount of money which has been spent on on heating our heating our homes. Now, I would actually uh, like to know how much should be been, uh, uh, how much potentially should that be to keep people in homes as warm as as we would like from a health perspective? Because I would argue you're probably looking at into three four billion, and what you what you get, Jeff, is people don't heat their homes. Because they can't afford to. 
Well, this is this this is it. It's the same thing, you know. Even if you look at the assumptions and the calculation methods, like the likes of SAP, um, yeah. um, and the Irish equivalent Deep, um, they're not. Sorry, I don't know if you can hear my uh, dog yeah. gro- growling in the background. No, um, no. but yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, anyway, yeah, but the, but the point, uh, I'll, I'll pick them up in a second if you can if you persist. But the point is that um, the assumptions in the software, I mean, SAP assumes um, without getting too lost in the technical detail that you heat. Part of the building for twenty one, the living area for twenty yeah. for twenty one degrees, um, and the remainder for eighteen to eighteen degrees. Yeah. Um, uh, so, and in a typical dwelling in Ireland, at least the living area fraction is about fifteen mm-hmm. percent. Um, so that works out in typical typical dwelling at about about an eighteen and a half degree mm. temperature. Um, but it's only assuming and SAP assumes nine hours per day to those temperatures um, at Monday to Friday, and sixteen hours per day at the weekends. Uh, the Irish methodology, by com- by contrast, assumes eight hours per day. Seven days a week. So, so as a con- as a consequence, if you had two houses on either side of the Irish border in the same development, um, uh, in two identical houses, semi D's, um, yeah. uh, one of them would have, uh, I think, uh, an assumed something like twenty five odd percent increase uh, yeah. in energy use because there's the the, the one the one up north uh, because the assumption is that uh, that it's uh, being heated for longer hours. But even then, it's a long way short. You know, and it, it kind of depends on the occupant type, right? You know, like if you've got, um, for instance, elderly people yeah. who have uh, a higher requirement for thermal comfort and they're spending more time at home anyway, um, uh, you know, they're going to need to heat the building uh, to a higher temperature and consistently. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's if you accept that principle uh, as your starting point, um it transforms everything in terms of your your uh, assumptions around uh, around you know the kinds of solutions that you would take, and that's I think where the likes of passive house, for instance, have done quite well as, as a standard because they because it, because the starting position is to assume comfort, yes, uh, constant comfort, you know, yeah, um, yeah, and 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 that and that uh, formula, uh, like you say, is already redundant if you are uh, if you're pain, of a pensionable age and you're at home longer. Or if you're unemployed, or let's let's face it, during the pandemic, it's pretty much redundant through the last eighteen months, and and still just now because we're spending so much more time at home. I think what interests me, and I, I um, I'm sure there's a figure, I think it could have been BRE that's got it, but the the the, the knock on effects um, to the health service of the NHS in the UK, uh, I think there's a figure again, it's a couple of billion pounds a year. I'll clarify that in, in the in the text, but it's what, what's the cost? You know, there's 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 what is the cost in society on the on the health service through not heating buildings in the way that is is provides a level of comfort that is sustainable with uh you know with with a decent living and I think that's the that's the unknown cost and it's so often when when um, retrofit costs or even increased new build costs um, are are dismissed because well they're, they're they're too expensive I think we have to look at what the knock on costs are uh, how do how do you calculate that. It's just you know, and there are other elements too. I mean, productivity would mm. be a, a, a good example yeah. too. There's there's loads of research in in office buildings about the benefits of green buildings in terms of reduced absenteeism yeah. and increased productivity. There's loads of research as well in schools showing uh, the benefits of of higher indoor air quality in terms of of, of learning yeah. and test performance and so on. Um, the same principles apply at home. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, if you've got a healthy building, um, it's more 
you know, a healthy, comfortable building uh, that's well ventilated and so on. Be, you know, uh, just it, it, the benefits can work on in, in many different levels. And you know, whether it's a, a question of even reducing yeah. the risk of, um, you know, COVID is an interesting one, I suppose, because it depends on who's who's living in your house. You know, yeah. um, but um, you know, uh, how many people you're exposed to in that regard. But um, you know, uh, ensuring that any pollutants that get into the building are um you know yeah. are being quickly got rid of but but yeah anyway um uh, we've got scott today isn't that right scott uh, yeah he's really he's, he was excellent scott he's um i have to say you know i feel um you you're, you're doing a ted talks <clears throat> scott's just had an article in time uh i feel slightly um you know i feel slightly nervous here jeff i'm i'm uh <laughs> I'm, I'm not performing it's uh, TEDx. It's not TED for me. Uh, it's not TEDx, and, um, and uh, I will cool. be hum- I will be humiliating myself. It's a public ah, humiliation, yeah. anyway. So um, I'm sure. Yeah. I'm sure you will. Just, just, just quickly before going to that, because you did mention passive house skills. I see in the press that Perth and Kinross Council are developing a passive house, passive house um, high school. So, and I see that quite a lot more, Jeff. I see a lot more. I know you did an article, or you did a whole piece of feature on. Um, the big one down in London, I forget the name, but that's, that, you know, I think that link between education, health and and, and learning, that's really interesting. I'm seeing, I'm seeing a lot more of, of, of that in the pipeline. So that's um, progressive. It's just a shame that this wasn't addressed. Kind of, that, that's a classic case of, of a situation where uh, if, we'd, if we'd had a rollout of, of that kind of standard um, prior to the pandemic, we would have had yeah. huge, huge benefits. I mean, uh, you know, and it's again, it's it fits into this bigger picture of whether the kinds of measures you take uh, to address one problem are just a quick fix solution to it to to one problem, or whether there's a robustness and resilience you build in that can, you know, uh, help to keep help you to tackle a lot of different kind of things. It's the fact right. that um, that the issue you have with COVID, for instance, and I know we're all sick to the to into the teeth of talking about it um, <laughs> at this stage, is how do you uh, ventilate a building mm. uh, to, to the kind of levels that you need in winter in particular? Yeah. Um, you know, because we know there's a couple of studies um, on natural ventilation um, in, uh, in in England and Scotland. There's a couple of studies that, that uh, in, uh, we're aware of. It looks at natural ventilation in housing specifically and um, in comparatively airtight housing. Mm. And had the foresight to inspect the condition of the vents before they began monitoring. And they found in the English study, 60% of vents blocked and closed. And the Scottish study, 63% of vents wow. blocked, uh, blocked and closed. So there's a uniformity yeah. about that, actually, which is really yeah. interesting. Um, and the point is that if you give people, a, if you're expecting people to rely on a strategy that uh, to the extent that it works, and of course, it'll be uh, wildly variable, um, yeah. uh, creates discomfort. You know, yeah. if, if it gives you enough ventilation, then it's probably going to give you too much ventilation, and you know, and then you're replacing warm air with with cold air. Um, yeah. um, then you're on hiding to nothing. Yeah. You, you have to try and find a way to to make um, uh, the uh, the that that role that that function, the replacement of air, imperceptible. Yeah, you know. Um, I, I think that's a that's a that's a dead good point. In fact, somebody asked me a question after the presentation I had uh, last week about. Um, you know, how do how will residents interact with a mechanical ventilation system? And I actually think that what you're saying, I agree with, I think it's actually far easier than what we've got just now because, you know, what I find is residents, you know, um, uh, you know, uh, and, and, uh, and their homes generally aren't using ventilation in the way that we should. So if, so by, by mechanically ventilating, 
to ways which are are um, pre-designed. I think that's 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 better. I think that if anything takes that that pain out of that for any resident. That's my my view. And it re- yeah, and it relates. There's a very interesting little snippet of a story that uh, that uh, Kate de Selincourt has written for our new issue, um, mm. which is just going to print um, on a study from Europe that I think Zender, the heat recovery ventilation system uh, manufacturer, uh, funded. And I, I don't know, I haven't looked at the detail of it. Basically, um, they were looking at uh, at ventilation in. Uh, there was four. There were four units in the same building. I think four different, uh, uh, you know, apartments. I think, um, and two of them were just reliant on natural ventilation through window opening, and two of them had um, MVHR. And they found that um, there was no discernible increase in the in the study period of, uh, which I think went on for a comparatively long period of time, in window opening in the naturally ventilated homes compared to the MVHR ventilated homes. Um, people were not adjusting or increasing their ventil- their window opening to compensate. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and, and the, there was a, extraordinary difference in the, in the CO2 levels. I think the, uh, the, the, the ones with MVHR mm-hmm. only, only went over a thousand parts per million of CO2, mm-hmm. uh, for 1% of the time. Whereas I, the, the, if I have, I've got the figures in front of me, but there, it was something, you know, it was a, yeah. it was something like twenty or thirty percent or more of the time um, above uh, above that figure in uh, in the in the naturally ventilated homes. Yeah, you know, that's um, that's interesting. Now, we might have a look at that. Actually, that's uh, that's really good. So, yeah, we've got a we've got Scott on uh, today. Uh, uh, we interviewed him last week. I thought he was really good. He's been. I mean, he's he's just a young guy, but I think he has. Um, He's really identified an area of, of um, uh, certainly within his uh, within the architectural community where I think um, that has to be addressed, and that's how we take into account some of the environmental issues we've got just now. And in fairness to him, he's been doing a huge amount of work. Um, you know, if you just do a quick Google of him, there's lots of, of different pieces and articles. And he's, I think, what was, um, I think I used the word refreshing a, a number of times in the interview, but what is refreshing about, about Scott's approach is he's a, he's a big collaborator. He wants to get involved, and that's great. That's what we need. Um, in fact, well, he's two- radical too, which I really, really like. You know, like, yeah. I, I mean, I, I'm becoming more radical the older I get. Um, I think, yeah. I guess, I just, uh, I guess anybody who's involved in this space, um, uh, this sustainable building space, and you're seeing what's happening from a climate change perspective. You can't help but become more radical because, yeah. uh, because we're we're running out of time. You yeah, know? Um, and um, it's it's just it's interesting because I suppose the trajectory normally goes in the other direction, you know. Um, yeah, uh, but you know, needs must, and I, and I just uh, yeah, uh, it, he's he's speaking a lot of uh, uncomfortable truths, I suppose, mm. to the industry. Mm-hmm. Um, but, and, and I have to say it's, you know, it's, a, it's, a, it's very useful for me as a publisher in this space to have people like Scott to help, you know, uh, keep you honest, you know, yeah. to, to keep, to keep you kind of, um, uh, because you, the tendency at times can be to try, you know, it can be to compromise a bit in order to, to, to bring people along, you know, yeah. um, and I can understand that, and we've done that to, to an extent in the past in ways as well. But uh, but you can't, uh, you, you know, you, you you can't go so far as uh, as to actually end up compromising yourself. And I think that um, uh, you know, uh, what's what Scott is is calling for. It just it seems so. 
uh, so so sensible, so logical, yeah. so necessary, and uh, and he's, he he puts his arguments together very very uh, very well as well. You know, he he does, and I think um, I think what is interesting about it as well, he's he's kind of talking for a reconfiguration and what architects and what architectural students will have to do. What what is uh, fascinating, and I don't want to talk too much of the interview before people listening to it, but. Um, what's interesting is, uh, and, and I agree with him here, is he's, he's talking about retrofit being being taught to architectural students in a way that perhaps is not just now. And and he, through his own experience, was saying, look, that, that just wasn't on offer to him, or certainly not to the extent that he wanted. And I think, and you and I have had this conversation, and it's an uncomfortable fact that many of us are going to have to, um, many of them in the, construct, in the wider construction, is going to have to come to terms with this. We can't build our way out of climate change. In fact, we're going to have to, uh, look at building only I think where we need to and 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 what we really need to build and I think the focus has to come away from the the new build to the ex, the existing stock and what we can reconfigure. Peter Rickett made a really good point and and one of my mate Chris said look we were talking about this a couple of years back is rather than look at extensive new build and and in, in sort of green built areas why don't we retrofit at scale, but perhaps look at small scale extensions, which would give you more utility within within that area. And I like that idea. I think so that was entirely sensible. So, you know, you might want to add an extra bedroom or, or, or increase the kitchen size, but that's still a much less much less environmental impact than, than building a four bedroom detached. And I like that kind of concept. We have to get our, 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 our mind into a different way of thinking. I think. Well, yeah. How do we get architects, um, mm. and not just architects, uh, uh, to think about um, doing less and about um, you know um, moving away from the the, the kind of um, the conventional uh, you know visually arresting architecture that uh, would that may, maybe doesn't always have much substance behind it yeah. um, towards uh, you know towards evidence based approaches towards towards uh, quantifying. Um, you know, even even from the outset, uh, uh, analyzing uh, what kinds of measures actually make most sense, even just in environmental terms, you know, because yeah. um, because our understanding of these issues is advancing enormously. It's just a question of trying to ensure. You know, like I take heart from the fact that uh, um, the Pritzker Prize recently was was won by oh, this uh, incredible French architecture practice whose focus is on um, on uh, just uh, conserving existing buildings, uh-huh. and doing as doing as little as you can. Yeah to a building, you know? Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Uh, so I just, uh, you know, I, I think, I think those kinds of principles um, yeah. are, uh, you know, while of course you have, you have to, you know, within that context, think about how to make the buildings fit for purpose um, yeah. and, and, and fit to help us to kind of adapt to the climate crisis and mitigate, uh, you know, uh, that crisis to the greatest extent possible as well, you know? Yeah. No, I agree. I think I think before we hear from Scott, I think it'd be good because what's been really has some some um, very um, complimentary messages we've had in, in terms of some of the the, the people that we had on and the conversation we've been having. And I think it's it's, it's quite a, a specific little space we inhabit, but I think at the same time it's good to give it a bit of of of, of airtime. But um, I wanted to speak just in terms of the broader uh, environmental. There's a couple of guys we've got lined up. Michael Jones, who's head of Housing Delivery and Asset Management at York um, City Council. He's a really interesting fella. Um, mm. And um, they have adopted Passive House um, as their new build standard. That's great. But he said, look, you know, that's just one part of the jigsaw. And quite rightly, what he's saying is we need to look at, you know, transport and water and ecology around the built environment, around the estate. And I think that's great that somebody in such a position 
is really looking at the big picture. And he said, you know, a little point in uh, decarbonizing the operational um, um, uh, uh, part of our stock, you know, the operational heating part of our stock when um, the actual carbon footprint at a state level is really high. So I really, I'd really like to talk to Michael. He's, he's quite keen to talk to us. That's great. Um, and, and in terms of the retrofit, um, the retrofit argument, I think um, John Edwards, Professor John Edwards, um, who, uh, who he's, he's been around for, for a while, um, a real wealth of knowledge on, on traditional and existing buildings. I think he's a really good source to 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 interview about, you know, what should, should you know, should we just retrofit everything or, or what do we need to think about? And I think this is something, another uncomfortable truth as an industry we have to, we have to have a think about. We I think we need more analysis of what we're retrofitting and and the limitations of of stock that was built, you know, hundred years ago, eighty years ago, and so. And I think that he can bring um, maybe some critical analysis of what's going on just now and, and, and things we need to consider. So I think John Edwards would be really good to to, to discuss that. But there's lots of people that um, that want to have a chat to us, which is nice. Well, yeah, and as I as I think I mentioned to you, um, one of the people who who wants to come on the podcast is Kieran Cuff, um, yeah. who's a, a MEP for Dublin. Yes, we still have those, um, and um, uh, and he he's a, he's a Green Party MEP, and he was a former he was a minister for planning in the uh, government in Ireland um, the last time the Greens were in coalition um, from two thousand seven to two thousand eleven, and. Um, uh, he also was the rapporteur last year on a European Parliament uh, report on a renovation wave. Um, so he'd have picked up an awful lot of, of insights uh, from, from that process, mm. not just on the technical matters, but on the kind of political dimension too. Um, mm. And I, I think, you know, obviously the the, the Brexit issue, uh, you know, uh, means that this, I guess, there's a question of whether the UK is just an interested observer in in in, in that um but you know uh there's and there's a whole bunch of unresolved questions actually uh that that, that mm-hmm. we, we should be tackling at some stage around what the uk's intentions are uh you know regulatory alignment wise and so on in terms of yeah of, of trying to align with european mm-hmm. uh, efforts um on uh renovation and on energy performance of buildings and so on you know mm-hmm. um and uh, I I don't know whether anyone really knows the answer because the answer that's been coming out of Whitehall in that uh, regard in the past has been uh, beautifully constructed nothing burger answers. You know um, that would make Ar- Armando Iannucci and the writers of the thick of it blush. You know, um, so uh, but, but you know it'd be great to hear what, what he has to say. But anyway, yeah, yeah. I was, deli- I was, I was gutted I couldn't make it again to um, uh, to this interview with with Scott oh, last he, week, given the was, the mag deadline. Yeah, he was he was great. And really, you know, I think we need more people who who, who want to get involved. In it's brilliant, really, really good. Um, but there's lots of people that we, that we have. Who I want to speak to is, is I got my, I'm a member of the um, the energy agency, and I got my uh, renewal form um, through, through the other day, and from um, uh, from Nick Wraith. Uh, and uh, I thought, if he'll come on, because I think that would be because whilst we were talking, and it's 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 um, my comfortable space is retrofit, but it's just one part of the little jigsaw, and uh, or big jigsaw actually. And um, I think uh, Nick could bring uh, well, what I'd like him to bring is is there's a bigger energy picture about you know the decarbonisation of 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 the grid about smart grids and and how that's going to pan out, which I think is really interesting. There was a really good. Uh, another podcast, um, Jan Rose now and and um, is it Robert Llewellyn, uh, the fully charged pod. It's really oh, good yeah, pod. Yeah. yeah, it's really good. And um, 
they kind of skirted around about some of the conversations and that. But I think what is what's of interest is to me is how we develop smarter grids so that we might not need the the overall capacity or or how we um, how we create smart local grids in order to maximise um, capacity. I'm interested in him to come on and, and, and have a chat. But um, yeah, there's lots of folk. It's, it's, it's really nice. There's been quite a lot of compliments. So we must be doing something right. <laughs> well, that's probably because you've been doing more of the interviews than me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, although I have to say um, what is quite interesting is um, I uh, I was putting my son to bed a couple of nights ago and uh, he said, Dad, um, what is it you actually do? And, and I said, well, I'm a, you know, I'm a builder. And he said, no, no, you're not. He said, he said, you haven't built anything for years. And he said, in fact, Mum says you can't fix the you can't fix the kitchen sink. I said, well, okay, fair enough. That's me. That's me. That's uh, that's that's me too. Uh, my it's, uh, it's do as I say, not as I do. You know, I'm I I, I like to point fingers and to be pious and to and, well, uh, you know, well, that, what I'm going to do, Jeff? I'm going to design a specification to fix the kitchen sink. I'm going to procure that, and I'm going to bring in a delivery partner, and um, <laughs> I, I'm going to get that done. And short, I'm going to phone my mate. Me, um, um, uh, Scott and see if he can do it. Um, anyways, so will we listen to uh, Scott? And- well, um Scott, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Really appreciate your time uh, this morning. It's a kind of uh, cold but sunny October morning, just um, autumn, so I seem to hit us. Um, Scott, can you um, tell us about the project you're involved with just now? Um, give us a bit of background about what you've been doing. There's been a lot of uh, press around uh, the work you've been doing with um, architecture students. Can you give us a, 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 a brief overview of what that's been? Hi, sure. It's an absolute pleasure. So, yeah. Uh, I'm an architectural de- designer by background, and I founded the Anthropos and Architecture School project almost three years ago now. So this project began as a bit of a protest because architecture students at the time I was studying and today are not being prepared for practicing during a climate emergency. So that protest kind of very organically developed and grew and became kind of teaching climate literacy, not just the students, but being invited into architectural practices occasionally teaching educators at universities. And I've now uh, lectured or given workshops at 18 universities across Europe and including Canada as well. So with this work, it's kind of looking at the broader the broader picture of where do buildings fit into the climate change sort of discussion and action. And not just about the impacts, because as we know, kind of the construction industry, the 40% industry, the moniker that it still hasn't shaken off But at the same time, the built environment is probably the very biggest opportunity that we have in terms of taking really radical action on climate change. Because at this moment in time, there are no non-radical options left. We don't have time for moderate little tweaks to a system that doesn't work. So the IPCC said the next five years are critical. So it's looking at the built environment and the opportunities it presents for in terms of of addressing public health through uh, good design it looks at kind of a, a just transition so for example in scotland we've got about 2.6 million homes that are going to need an upgrade if we're going to hit any climate target and it's really about empowering people working in the built environment to see that they're not they don't have to be part of the problem they can be part of this really broad scale solution that could be quite transformative as well hmm. 
I think that's I think that's that's really great. And we had um we Scott Foster on this program uh, just a few weeks back and he in terms of the 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 lateness of the hour, he made a good point. He said, you know, it's not 10 to, to 12 in the clock and the climate change clock is it's half past 12 and, and we don't have time. I think it's a, a fundamentally important point to to make. But but I love the fact that you, like it, I think us, um, see this as an opportunity and an opportunity, not just about how we decarbonise stock, but what that actually does for society, uh, householders, the economy. Can you give us a little bit more context and some of the, the nuts and bolts of how that translates to your teaching and what, what that means on, on the ground? Yeah, so as part of the teaching, uh, when we look at our built environment, we spend about 90% of our time indoors. So what we build, how we build it, how it's designed has a massive impact upon our health, our well-being, our happiness. To even quantify that quickly, about 40% of all of the money any nation spends on healthcare is directly attributable to its built environment. So that means any kind of good policy in the built environment is public health policy. So that means that the built environment is totally inseparable from climate policy, from public health. And then we also have issues around fuel poverty as well. So these are things that are ongoing issues that need to be tackled. And if we are going to hit any of the climate targets, any government internationally has set out, it has to be part of the really broad set of solutions. And the good thing is, we already have so many amazing examples to learn from. So a lot of my work is really is taking what's been done before and shining a light on that, telling the story of how it was done, showing how how doable it is. So it's it's not impossible to build uh, a living building challenge certified retrofit. So you can that's uh, the living building challenge is an incredibly high standard of building. It's uh, net positive in energy use. It's net positive in water use. There are no toxic materials in that building whatsoever. And it's got it's got to demonstrate it hits all these incredibly high metrics for an entire year. But it is entirely possible to take an eight, 1980s warehouse and make that net positive. Mm. So lots of the work that I do is kind of setting the scene around the climate crisis because that's some, something we don't really do often. We don't take the time to really look at it and sit with it or even say how we feel about it. So that's a really a really big gap in most education up to date is that it's not recognised we are currently in a climate emergency. So it's been quite dislocated from that fact. So uh, that's how I got onto the, the term kind of climate literacy because I found it offends people less when you talk about literacy as opposed to you don't know how to do sustainable buildings. <laughs> so it's... It's kind of to really distill that down. It's just the it's understanding the link between climate change and buildings. So yeah. what impacts do climate what impacts is climate change going to have on our buildings? Hmm. So what we've been designing is not being designed for a world we are currently moving into climate wise. But it's also understanding that the built environment has impacts not just upon the environment, but upon human health, upon life, upon biodiversity, upon land. And then not just stopping at knowing the link, but also being able to identify those opportunities for positive action. So I found as soon as I phrased it like this, there was suddenly a hell of a lot more interest than the occasional provocative talk here or talk at a conference. And there was a huge appetite to learn from young practitioners who they know they understand that they are not being prepared for mm. the climate we are actually moving into. They know that they're not being given the tools that they need so they've they're starting to ask for it in droves. The mm. the best example I can give is uh, Trada uh, sponsored a, a couple of workshops I did. 
At the first one, we got students and staff from 16 universities in the UK. And the second one, we got students and students and staff from 46 different institutions of higher education, and there was 200 of them. So when you make that opportunity available, people dive at it. There's yeah. such an appetite to learn because I think uh, especially younger generations really understands they see clean through the greenwash, they see clean mm-hmm. through the net zero procrastination and we understand that it's not a case of kicking the can down the road because we are watching other countries around the world facing impacts for decades. We've seen more intense droughts. We've seen the starts of famines and more intense hurricanes, flooding flooding in the UK as well, not just abroad. Mm-hmm. But we need to recognise that when it comes to acting on climate change, especially in our construction industry, which has such a huge impact, I think the, the UK construction industry for a bigger picture has a bigger carbon footprint than 149 countries. Right. So it's it's on a global scale. Our industry is on the same scale as countries. Mm. So if we are going to really take this seriously, we need to look at what has to be done. So in terms of kind of mass retrofit, when you look at what's necessary to meet our climate targets, even conservative numbers say we need 100,000 more people doing the work. Some some numbers say we've got to double the size of the UK construction industry to meet that demand. So the picture is one where we have to scale things up, but we also have to drive carbon emissions down. Mm -hmm. So it's more a case of looking at degrowth type policies. So that means trying to move away from new build being the solution to everything or the go to. So for we've got so many derelict buildings in Scotland, especially in Glasgow, where I kind of grew up as well. And we need to start looking at these as opportunities and not just as kind of derelict and unloved objects. Yeah. So it's it's such a I could I could actually talk about this for hours. It's, <laughs> no, the, it's, oh, it's this is, this is just so much that can be done. It's, it's great. I, I mean, the first thing I was going to ask was how how has your um, how have students uh, obviously taken to this? But you've answered that. I mean, you, and that's quite really positive. I mean, I, th- I think the generation of architects who have been taught just now are the generation who will potentially, um, uh, you know, have potentially who who will be impacted by climate change the most, and get a couple of young kids, and and, and they're in that they're in that kind of bracket. So, so that's positive. Um, I mean, you're. Ta- I have to say, Scott, you're talking our language when you're talking retrofit, and 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 I think a question I'll ask in, in a minute is which I think you've kind of alluded to is where do you think the priority lies between new builds and 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 retrofit? And should we as a country start to have a more um, uh, grown-up conversation about what we should be building and why we should be building that uh, as opposed to how we can retrofit, which sometimes just seems too hard to most people how we can retrofit. But, but just before I ask that, Great that the students uh, are on board and that there's there's a real hunger there. I think that's the, the term you use. That's brilliant. How are the academic institutions reacting to that challenge? That's perhaps as if not as important. Yeah, with with the institutions to give to give credit where credit is due because there have been people doing incredible things for decades, but it has been this kind of small small ground where it's kind of labours of love or perseverance where one individual has been really championing this and pushing it. So the, but at the moment, there are the starts of movement in academic institutions, but I've been doing this now since the start of 2019. So at the start of 2019, just before it, I did a bit of research to find out kind of what's the average architecture school students 
understanding of sustainability in the built environment. And I thought, if I get some numbers, we can talk to the heads of schools, we can talk to the institutions and say, look, we've got something to do. Maybe we can like do something now. So I did the research, the numbers came back. The average level of understanding was 59% and they felt very unprepared. Mm. So when you consider the impact that buildings have, and also when we start to look at where does design come into that? So the very earliest design uh, moves account for about 80 to 90% of the ecological impact. So we've been preparing architects for decades that don't fully grasp that and don't have that understanding. But what I found as well is it's not just the case of saying this is not being done. It's that climate literacy. That's not been, that wasn't taught to the people doing the teaching today. That wasn't a priority. So it's all about what the educational system has been prioritizing. Mm. And again, kind of inviting that very frank, kind of a serious grown-up conversation about are we teaching the right things now? Are we looking at the right things? Because so even the same example, are we going to ask students to just design new buildings for their projects? Or are we going to ask them to actually tackle the challenge of retrofitting something quite awkward and difficult? And because most of the work that we're going to be doing in the coming decade is going to have to be adapting to make buildings more resilient to climate change. So with the institutions, there is still an inertia. There's that kind of, there's no kind of, there's not a united front yet either, Mm. which is a little bit frustrating. So I invited all the schools of architecture in the UK through an open letter to openly collaborate with each other. I laid out the research I'd done. I got about two responses (laughs) out of over 50 of them. I was like, all right, maybe this isn't going to work. Maybe I've just got to start doing and making these spaces. So Right. There are there are good things happening, but there's still this kind of it's not really grasping the reality of the planet literally yeah. being on fire quite often. Yeah, I, th- I think it's yeah, I think it's across all sectors, isn't it? Where where there isn't the urgency or the urgency isn't isn't realised. Um, perhaps that will change in the, in the coming years or so. But, you know, time is, is, is running out. And in terms of, you know, um, not being trained in any architectural disciplines, when, when you're when you're training as an architect, is retrofit an entirely different um, uh, leap from new build? And, and is it, you know, is our retrofit techniques, if they differ fundamentally from new build techniques, are they being uh, are they being taught or would you like to see more of that? I guess it's the latter. <laughs> I would absolutely love to see students taken on site this uh, today to see ongoing retrofit projects. Because in, in my own education, uh, we never really got walked through how to do that. Mm. That wasn't that wasn't a module. That wasn't a, there was no learning outcome that said by the end of this degree you will understand the importance of retrofitting buildings as opposed to just throwing up new ones. Yeah. So there was. It felt to me that I was looking at. I wanted to do retrofit projects, and quite a few times they got kind of. It was a little bit difficult. So when you want to do adapt, I the kind of the term adaptive reuse on kind of old infrastructure was something that I'm really interested in. How can we re- reuse the infrastructure of the Anthropocene, of the things that got us into the mess? How can we reuse that in a way that helps people thrive? Yeah. So I had a couple of years of doing these like adaptive reuse projects and just coming up with these barriers and kind of this unwillingness to accept that uh, reusing buildings is interesting, let alone can be good architecture. And we all know that to be a fallacy, to be a myth. There's some of the most incredible buildings you visit today 
are buildings that are over 100 years old that have been maintained, that have been conserved. Yeah. So kind of conservation and retrofit have so many overlaps. Yeah. And that's something that can be celebrated as well. But in, in the education, uh, when it comes to really teaching the, the technique, the methodology, that is sorely, sorely lacking today. Mm. That's something that 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 needs uh, a, an urgency of a kind of indescribable proportions to change that. And, and maybe maybe that's about academia, um, uh, you know, getting involved. Or uh, you know, from my own uh, daytime job, uh, we'd love to have any student come and look at some of the buildings we retrofit. What, what's really interesting though, Scott, is a, a lot of the times when you retrofit these buildings, you, we, we kid on it it's a bit like time team. You know, you, you start stripping stuff back, and you think, well, why did they do that? And there's practices and processes that you think, gosh, that's 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 not how we would have done it, and, and much more rudimentary in some of the some of the stock that we've looked at. But I totally agree. I think we've, we've got a, we've got a huge uh, heritage in the UK, especially in Scotland. Um, I speak to Professor John Edwards, um, you know, um, uh, often about the, the importance of the built environment and heritage. Um, but one thing you mentioned in there, uh, you know, just about. Um, uh, before we're going to talk about new building and, and retrofit, is the term opportunity. And and whilst we we might have to move, I think we will have to move inevitably to less new build simply because of you know the carbon that's emitted from that. But again, going back to that opportunity, there's a huge opportunity for architects to get involved in a much wider, um, a much wider and diverse existing uh, existing um, uh, homes. Oh, absolutely. Beyond I, the role of the architect, I really think has to kind of diversify and really go into new territory. There's lots of ways to practice untraditionally mm. and not. So one thing I did kind of recently using that kind of uh, architectural space that I've kind of inhabited and lots of people I've met uh, during the climate fringe in Scotland, we kind of co-hosted Scotland's first ever People's Assembly on Climate and Housing Justice. So that was kind of facilitating a space where uh, a tenants union, architects, uh, kind of trade unionists, campaigners, the public could all come round tables and share what their experiences were of the built environment in Scotland. So what's it like to live in a home in Scotland in 2021 during a climate emergency? Hmm. But also what's it like to be an architect who's trying to realise low carbon projects is trying to encourage that policy change mm. and then to get the people who are going to be doing that retrofitting around the table as well because the number of jobs and the kind of just transition of decarbonizing the built environment is going to be kind of generation changing it's not just going to be slight it's going to be yeah. massive so it's kind of using that kind of the social license of the architectural practitioner mm. kind of pulled all these groups together and said right what how are we going to Let's first of all talk about those experiences and then we're going to talk about where have things gone right. So where are there examples of not just technologies, but housing models that are more equitable, that where mm. have things been done well environmentally? And then last of all, it was kind of what does policy have to, how does policy have to change to enable this, but also to ensure nobody's left behind by that change. Mm -hmm. And so with like what for, for the kind of the practicing architects, they can be applying their knowledge in so many new ways that are not spoken about during your education. You can you can help a co-housing group understand the link between climate change and what they're doing. Mm -hmm. You can, if a, a tenants union is looking to do a campaign, you can help them by pointing in the right direction to information, to explaining all the jargon around mm. what does retrofit mean yeah. and trying to like strip out the words which make it inaccessible. 
And you can also be, when it comes to the educating side, you can be helping to teach younger generations before even university how important that is. Because if we're going to manage to do this mass retrofit that's entirely necessary, mm. we need the public on board. Yeah. And to get the public on board, they have to understand that it's not an, it's not just an inconvenience. Yeah. It's this giant opportunity. Yeah. And that's kind of part of the kind of falling short we have at the moment as we don't get we don't see that opportunity reflected in the media around climate change, around the built environment. We get this kind of this doomist approach and everyone that raises a very valid point around kind of the needs to address buildings mm-hmm. is kind of fobbed off a little bit. So we're in this kind of yeah. difficult space where you can have all the statistics you want. You can have you can just be talking pure common sense and just yeah. asking for like asking for the asking for the bar to be raised from the floor. <laughs> and, and you're you're seen to be a radical for wanting the bar not to be on the floor. Yeah, it's a it's a really good point, isn't it? And, and I totally agree. I think I think we've I think what what I'm getting from and it's a really refreshing conversation, Scott. You, you know, you're trying to reframe the argument here and the argument. And Jeff and I have this conversation regularly, um, and and that it, it shouldn't be about what what you can't have, but an opportunity for something better. Um, and and I really like that. I think it's something we need um, to get across more. Also, what I really like, and, and um, I listened to a presentation by Sarah Sarah, Sarah Lewis the other day in Passive House Trust. And uh, you know she's uh, she's got some great um, uh, slides, and, and she's saying we're going to have to retrofit twenty eight million buildings. And I think what what you're saying there is sometimes, and I'm probably guilty of this myself, is that we. Um, we don't engage with residents in the way that perhaps we should. But I think what you're talking about there is a, a much more uh, comprehensive engagement process, which which would be overall beneficial for the project because you're taking people along with you in terms of the journey, the options, why you need to do things and, and what works. And that's probably something we need to do at a much larger scale rather than just force change on people. We have to engage with those people as to why that change is necessary. So in terms of, and, you know, you, you know, as we are, uh, we're a, a retrofit bunch. You know, do you think we have to move away from from new builders? Not saying I have new build fetish, but politicians do love a new build. They love a spade outside a a, a, a brand new door. You know, where do you, and 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 again, this is going back to the opportunity. It's not about putting architects out of business. It's about perhaps focusing and reprioritizing to to retrofit. Is is that the way you think things will logically happen? Oh, absolutely. Even again, to look at numbers, 80% of the buildings we're going to be using in 2050 are already standing up today. So that's 30 years. We've got another 20% left to be doing. But when it comes to all this new build, we really, the narrative has been new is good. We've got this kind of designed obsolescence where a long lifespan building is assumed to be about 65 years at the moment, which is an incalculable waste as well. And in Northwest Europe, only 1% of building components are actually used beyond that first building. So we've got this huge kind of attachment to building new builds to, but not even in the quantity we need them. We all Mm. know for a fact that enough land is being banked to meet housing needs immediately. Mm -hmm. And there's already enough existing homes that are either not used, empty, or that could be used in other ways. So in this kind of moving away from new build, because we cannot solve all of our problems by endlessly churning out new buildings. There's the carbon budget problem. If we, yeah. if, we if every country in the world decided we are going to meet all of our housing needs by just building zero carbon buildings, 
we would easily blow that 1.5 degrees budget the IPCC set out. Yeah. So they're really you're you are absolutely right. We need to have a very we need to have a quite frank sit down, yeah. open conversation about we when it comes to the new builds. We cannot simply rely on that as the yeah. go-to. It cannot be the assumed default because, and with architects for retrofit as well, there's this, there's the idea that's going to put them out of work. But when you actually look at it very pragmatically, every retrofit project that's going to be done with kind of a whole house approach has to be assessed. It has to be, someone has to look at that and calculate and design and work out what is the most efficient way to do this? Mm-hmm. What are the... What materials are we going to use? How are we going to achieve what the IPCC said all, all buildings should be at, kind of fossil-free, near-zero energy? So it needs the design input because we yeah. have to design these solutions. But also, it's not just in the design. It's in the communication of these things. Architects could be fulfilling a really, really valuable role in kind of communicating between design teams about why this is important uh, where do different things come in? The kind of expertise and research as well, but there's also that kind of going beyond the finished project. And architects, and quite a few architectural practices are kind of building up specialities and building performance evaluation as well. Hmm. So architects are not going to lose out on work; they're actually yeah. going to gain work. So yeah. if you look at it, if you look at it long term, and all of the different roles that have to be carried out in a retrofit, it's not very different than your standard new build it's a bit it's there are some there are some differences but if we're going to do this kind of at scale we really need people to start illustrating like architects do like illustrating that future so a future where addressing these problems is not just a hassle it's not just disruption it's a more kind of you're going towards homes that are uh, they're easier to heat they cost less to heat it is more comfortable we don't have the same problems with mold and mm. kind of asthma causing things. We can strip out these toxic chemicals. We can actually reimagine what we're putting into buildings because the amount of toxic uh, building materials is absolutely astronomical. Yeah. So architects have all these skills, all this expertise. It's about applying it differently and applying it more. So perhaps it perhaps it's not sitting at the head of a design team or being a master builder or getting a really wonderfully kind of star architecture type skyscraper built with your name somewhere. But it's <laughs> you're you're helping kind of address homes. And yeah. homes are they might not have the same kind of front cover of the journal sort of impact, but th- that is the backdrop to people's lives. Yeah. That is where kind of where people's kids grow up it's where people spend their time it's where they kind of have family meals it's where they come back to after work or where they all sorts of different things and it's about changing changing the narrative from hassle to opportunity Opportunity. from disruption to this what is possible and again we have so many fantastic solutions and examples of this being done incredibly well in scotland and abroad yeah, I just think that's again so refreshing, and and and, and, I, and I, you know, I think you're absolutely right. I think the the and, and I guess if I, if I can maybe paraphrase what what you're saying is, look, there's an opportunity here to do things at a smaller scale, but much more sustainable, and much more valuable, both from uh, you know, from from a, a community's perspective, what you're doing within communities as well as with the overall environment. So that's I think that's, that's brilliant. Just to, just in the last couple of minutes we have have left. Um, 
you know, we we're in the the the, the general uh, retrofit business. What, what is your take on renewables? They have a huge place. We 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 know that. Are there risks in looking at renewables only as a solution? And and is there any experience you can 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 bring to the the conversation about how we should or shouldn't use them in, in the context they should be used? I I think when it comes to uh, retrofit, the very the most pragmatic way to begin is to have an efficient fabric that's not just going to to throw all of this heat you're putting in out the walls. So just to, to strip it down to absolute basics, because at the moment we're, see, we're starting to see lots of articles talking about the needs to retrofit homes and how we've all of a sudden realised in 2021 that, wow, our homes are actually a massive source of carbon emissions. But some of the, some of the immediate uh, suggestions are uh, we should just use heat pumps. <laughs> or we should we should go straight to renewables. But the thing is, things like heat pumps are, were originally designed to provide low-level heat for efficient buildings. That's not our existing building stock. About 99% of Europe's, Europe's existing building stock is inefficient and not up to scratch. And even when we look at today's building regulations, so if you build to your kind of bog standards, like ticking the boxes, you're, you're doing what's legal. It's not environmentally friendly by any means. Mm. You're doing what's legal. And if you decide that to that standard, you're just going to apply renewables and that's your fix, that's simply not enough. And you're also ignoring, ignoring the kind of the embodied carbon of, say, solar panels, the materials going into them, where that comes from. And really starting to look at that, that broader picture, because if we're going to do this properly, there has to be a process and a methodology that is evidence-based. It can't just be what makes the person trying to sell you a heat pump some money. Mm. It really has to go kind of above yeah. and beyond. So it has to be about understanding how buildings work. So if we decide, like, for example, for your kind of standard uh, kind of building regulations, when it comes to air tightness, so ensuring we're not just throwing heat out the walls, yeah. when it comes to air tightness, you can have an accumulative gap in a facade of a house that's about all the holes put together are about the size of an ATM. That's building uh -huh. regulations. That's that's legal. Yeah. You can't have it in one place because that is you're they're gonna see that. And that's <laughs> not that's not gonna fly. Yeah. But when it comes to kind of like passive house, those levels are about the size of a small coin. It's tiny. It's yeah. so small. But in comparison, this is we are building regulations are not up to scratch. We cannot simply solve this by throwing shiny toys at it. And yeah. we've got a real and especially in the Western world, we've got a real fixation on technology being a kind of a silver bullet, a savior solution. So instead of having that very serious conversation and instead of actually assessing the situation properly, so looking at inefficient buildings or looking at buildings that just need to be given regular maintenance. Mm -hmm. So kind of if I was to give any sort of like parting shot, it would absolutely be that if we are going to tackle this properly, building regulations have to, first of all, prioritise retrofitting over new build in legislation and planning policy. So that's number one. Number two is that we need to have whole life carbon regulation. So the Architects Climate Action Network have done incredible work on their campaign around embodied carbon. And there's now that kind of the Part Z proposal that came from another group. So that's kind of not just looking at the operational carbon, but also the embodied and end of life. Yeah. And starting to regulate that. So that in some countries is starting to be regulated. But if we're going to take this absolutely seriously and not just kind of half measures, we need to have legally binding maintenance cycles that are enforced and, mm -hmm. and actually kind of carried out because 
this, the kind of the fact of the matter is our building stock is simply not being looked after properly. We only we've got a very reactive response. So when something goes wrong, we still solve it. But if we also start to if we spin that into an opportunity, the number of jobs that would create to even do a five-year maintenance cycle on every building, every home in Scotland, 2.6 million homes, that's an incredible amount of work. And also that would keep our carbon emissions in check because we would know our buildings working as they're supposed to. So we've got this real, but yeah, when it comes to renewables, we've got this huge fixation on shiny kind of bolt on things that things that mean we don't have to change business as usual. Things that are just that kind of, you stick it on at the end, you cross your fingers and you hope it works. But in some cases, buildings have been done where kind of tenants are getting incredible fuel bills even though there is these kind of, they've just been built, they get these heat pumps, they're still getting massive bills because these yeah. buildings are not designed, are not have not been properly looked at or assessed. And if they have been assessed, the job's been pretty terrible. Yeah. So it's just kind of looking at what needs to be done and having that, I've got the kind of quite a pragmatic approach. I kind of, I like to look at the opportunities, but also the pragmatism of how we do this hmm. is going to be, in legislation if we're going to make this happen it has to be local authorities are going to have to be kind of pushing things as far as they can on their own way so uh, Brighton and Hove has a circular economy plan that looks at kind of all of the inputs kind of uh, for the kind of bioregional inputs for the entire kind of count and that's incredible every mm-hmm. every single local authority can do that and then you've got examples abroad so Amsterdam's uh, kind of a, a circular a donut city looking at do- circular economics so it's yeah. it's kind of like starting start starting small, thinking big, and acting now to kind of quote yeah. Paul Chatterton. But it ha- but it ha- I take your point. But it has it has to be. I think if we the time, as we've said earlier in the conversation, you know, we don't have the time. It has to be led. So it can't be voluntary. It has to be led by organisations, whether they be um, public uh, or not. I like the the, the donut economics uh, Amsterdam thing is really fascinating. I had a conversation with Kate Rayworth a few few months back, um, and uh, I think that's really refreshing. Um, probably for another pod, though it's an, another good hours, hours worth of, of conversation. But what I really in, in, enjoy, um, Scott, is your reframing of the of of the argument. It is very refreshing because. You know, you mentioned something there about if, how do we maintain our properties, and you and I are both West of Scotland boys, and you drive about the West of Scotland, you see properties in poor state of repair, and we don't treat our properties the way we, we treat other items, like cars, for example. You would service a car and have it MOTs every year, mm-hmm. and and maybe there has to be something in legislation there that comes in to, to, to make sure that, that buildings don't fall beyond a certain way. Now, I know there are statutory about... Um, to, to an extent, but um, it's a very good point about if we tuned up those buildings in the way you mm-hmm. tune up a car, what would we uh, what would we do? Scott, we're, we're kind of out of time, and it's a shame because I think both of both of us could talk for uh, another hour. If you're going along to some of the events at COP in the built environment, um, let's get a beer. There's a few folk um, going, um, but it'd be really good to, to talk to you there. Can't thank you enough. If there's one parting message, what is it you'd, you'd like to say? What's the, the, the message you'd like to get across? I think kind of parting message is that we all have so much more agency to actually kind of not just advocate for and champion, but to do things pretty much immediately. But on top of that, it's it's reframing the argument from a disruptive problem to a hassle to looking at all these pretty incalculably huge opportunities for the built environment. Because if we 
even to look at the simplest thing, if we were to do that maintenance cycle, we could be lifting thousands, tens of thousands of people out of fuel poverty whilst create get whilst giving people long-term stable work. And if that was to be done nationally and taken on by government to have something, if you want, lots of people use the analogy of that kind of wartime mobilization. I want to reframe that entirely. And I would ask people to look at this kind of climate challenge as a mobilization on the same level and with the same compassion as starting up the NHS. Mm. So if we do that from a position of care and compassion for other people, for the planet, for life, and we start to kind of change that framing. So take out the kind of the aggression. And if we if we do this well, we are going to be improving hundreds of thousands of other people's lives. And we could be kind of helping the environment. We could be bolstering biodiversity. We could really be transforming what society looks like. And that can start by people very loudly advocating for change today. So you have the you have the agency to start doing that now, to start having those conversations, to start putting pressure on politicians, to start uh, uh, upskilling in your workplace, to start asking for more training, to start talking to other workplaces. So one example, like in architecture, lots of us have in-house CPD. If every single architecture firm decided to share their in-house CPD with other firms, we could rapidly transform the architectural sector in the space of a few months. So well, parting a, a shot. That's a that's a brilliant thing to leave on, Scott. I mean, that's a really a low cost initiative that could be that could be done right now. So if anyone's listening, let's uh, let's see what we can do with that. Scott, it's been an absolute pleasure. I think the message is fantastic. It's about opportunity rather than than uh, than some of the uh, the negative narrative narrative that we've heard so far. Scott, 